0: There, this is Abby at Recovery Radio, and I'm going to share a simple secret that will make you smile all day. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. The larger the amount you donate, the bigger your smile will be. Feel the power of recovery for yourself and become part of the solution. Go to recoveryradio.net right now and start your day with a smile. My name is Victor, and I'm an alcoholic. And this thing's on wheels. This should be this should be interesting. Um, I, uh, my sobriety date is uh, January 25th, 1989, and my home group is the Eldersburg Into Action Group. We meet on Monday nights at 8 o'clock in Eldersburg, Maryland, and it's a wonderful group, and there's a lot of home group members. This is almost like talking in front of my home group. I know so many people, and there's so many of my home group members here, and I'm um, I'm just so grateful everybody showed up and, uh, and I was wondering what it was going to be like at this moment. <laughs> so here it is. Um, I want to thank uh, Nancy for asking me to do this. This is really a, uh, just a tremendous privilege for me. and It's a privilege any time you get to stand up here and, and talk about Alcoholics Anonymous and what it's done for my life, but particularly at this uh, this convention. This convention means a lot to me. and. Uh, and I want to thank the committee. I know that this just doesn't, you know, this kind of thing just doesn't happen. There's a lot of hard work that goes into it, and um, a lot of hard work. And, uh, and they've done a great job, and, and here we are. So we'll see what happens. Uh, thank Eric for Eric has uh, really done a good job. He's um, been to my home group a number of times, and we've emailed and telephoned and everything else, and he's done a great job. And I think he's more nervous than I am sitting up here tonight. <laughs> It reminded me, I wanna tell this story real quick. I probably shouldn't, but in nineteen ninety six I uh, introduced Paul here, who's gonna to speak tonight. I introduced him at uh, Blackstone. It was Sunday morning, and I was so I was first I think it was the first guy I ever introduced at a, a meeting and I was so nervous. And all I could think about was me, you know how <laughs> And uh, and I introduced him and went through all this stuff and I sat down in the and and on the stage, it's wide open. There's no tables. You just sit in a chair, and it's just wide open. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about how I did, you know. And, all this, and I wasn't even paying attention to what Paul was saying. And, and, uh, and I just happened to glance down, and my zipper was wide open. And I, and I, and I quit thinking about myself uh, pretty quick. But God has a funny way of uh, telling us not to take ourselves so seriously. So it's... It's been pretty interesting. Um, another thing that's special about this is uh, Dick showed me a, a flyer from the first Maryland State Convention, and, uh, and my grandfather was a speaker here at the first Maryland State Convention. And uh, to be able to come up here and, you know, walk behind that is a pretty special thing for me. And, uh, and my, my grandfather was, uh, uh, well, he loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was—he uh, died about two years ago. He was, uh, had 52 years of sobriety, and um, and he's meant a lot to me in my sobriety. And, and he's meant much more, more than that. He's—you know—he's my grandfather, and and he's had a huge impact on my life. And, uh, and my grandfather, as well as my grandmother, and think, been thinking about it, my grandmother a lot. She said she'd say a prayer for me today at four o'clock, and and uh, she was here last week, and I got to spend a lot of time with her, and she's been to this convention many times and and uh, it's just real special to be up here doing all of this um so i guess i ought to do what i came here to do <laughs> i was uh i was born at scone park maryland the oldest of six it turned out to be six i was born at the washington sanitarium and hospital it's now the washington i don't know which side i was born on sometimes that's kind of <laughs> but uh my mom and uh my my parents were divorced when I was seven, and uh, my mom remarried when I was 13, and we moved to uh, to this little uh, town called Luray, Virginia, and kind of set up shop there. And it was a uh, it was a it was you know it was like in the movies, you know. It was a, we lived on the Shenandoah River at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains on a, on a farm, you could go outside my door and look around any direction and not see another house. My grandparents lived two fields over, and and that was just tremendous. And um, I got to see them anytime I wanted. All I had to do was run over there, and it was just the it was the greatest thing in the world. Just the greatest thing in the world. And and I, my grandparents, you know, as much as they've the profound effect they've had on my life since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I used to spend summers with them down there on that farm, and uh, and I could I could remember. It's funny. I can remember on Friday nights. We'd all pile in the car and go into town, and I'd be, they'd put me in a kitchen of this church. And they would all sit in the other room and do whatever they were doing. I had no idea. It was a smoky, a lot of smoke. I don't remember that much. And, uh, and an hour or so would go by, and we'd get back in the car and leave. And what they were doing was having an AA meeting. And, uh, and I, I remember being in the kitchen and, and messing around. And I don't know if I, that's where I caught it or what. But, um, I can remember that pretty vividly. And through uh, and I started going to high school there, and, and I was on the honor roll in high school. And I um, I don't know what time I started meant to check. And and I played basketball on the basketball team. And I was uh, in love with this cheerleader. Who you know, it was just it was perfect. It was perfect. Everything was there. And through a set of circumstances, uh, my dad lost his business, and we uh, were uprooted and ended up moving to Columbia. Maryland, and uh, what I thought was a big city, you know. And uh, we went from living on that, in that house on that 80 acre farm to uh, living in a townhouse right in the middle of uh, Columbia. And it was, for somebody at the time, I was 15 years old, and it was a pretty traumatic experience for me. Everything that I loved and everything that I knew and everything that made me whole seemed like was back there. And, and I was, uh, I was just scared to death. I really was. I didn't know what to do. And during all of this, my, uh, my real father would come in and, and out of my life. He would, you know, pick us up for the weekends, and and we would spend time with him. And then when we came home, you know, uh, we weren't intentionally made to feel guilty, but my mom and my, you know, the, the guy that she married, who's now my dad, he, he adopted us, we, we put this, we had this nice little family unit. And every time my dad would come in, and it would just kind of disrupt that. And I was made to feel real guilty. I don't think it was intentional, but... It was just a lot of friction and a lot of stuff that I didn't want to fool with. And I made the decision one day to call my real dad and uh, called him up, and I said, I didn't think it would be a good idea if, uh, if you ever came and saw us anymore. It just caused me too much trouble, and uh, I'd appreciate it if you just didn't come and see me anymore. And there was a lot of tears, and, uh, and that was a heck of a decision to, for somebody 15 years old to make. And, and I didn't see him again until I was probably close to 30 years old somewhere around there. And um, and that's something I carried around for a long time. Now, I hadn't had a drink up to this point. And I met a guy down the street, and uh, we got together one day and stole a bottle of 151-proof Bacardi's rum, and uh, got some oranges, some fresh squeezed oranges. I don't know why we picked that, we, but we needed something to get it down. Because you just, if you've never drank before, um, and then you start out with 151-proof rum, it's hard to get down. And we would cut it with orange juice and, and get it down. and and, you know, it was it was the magic I was looking for. You know, I've, I was living in that town and I was just, I felt like I was way down here and everybody else was up on the top shelf. And I started drinking that stuff and it put me right up on the top shelf with everybody else. You know, it changed. And that's what makes, I think, the thing that makes me different from a non-alcoholic is it changed, that stuff changed the way I felt about me. And more importantly, it changed the way I felt about you. And... uh it just made everything okay took all that fear and all that worry and all those things that that were bottled up in here and just made it all go away and I felt good and I drank that night till I either passed out or blacked out I don't remember what happened but I uh I woke up the next day and I was sick for a number of days my mom thought that I had the flu and she was trying to take me to the doctor and it was it was pretty interesting and I'll uh and i tell you I, I, I was pretty sick but it what it did to me was never that important what it did for me was always much more uh you know what much stronger in my life than what it did to me so i could handle all the rest of that kind of stuff and i uh, and i began to drink and i i tell you i, <clears throat> I had a good time for a lot, for a lot of years um you know i drank with you know got a group of friends and you know got my license and of course we drove and drank all over the place and we're just having a good time and try, and I got through school. I, I just barely made it through high school. I remember when I turned 16 years old, and, you know, I found booze, and I found some friends that weren't exactly the, you know, top of the class, and, and we were causing a lot of trouble in school, and, and I'd learned how to buck the system in school, and I could, you know, I could skip school just about any time I wanted and never get caught. And when I turned 16 years old, the principal wrote a letter home to my mom and dad and said, uh, Victor is now 16 years old and no longer required by the state of Maryland to attend attend high school. And uh, you could quit when you were 16, but I don't know how many people had a letter written home saying, you know, he's not really required to be here anymore. And if he doesn't straighten up, you know, we're going to ask him to leave. And uh, I made it through high school and and graduated and got my own apartment and started started out on this – Uh, to fulfill this dream that I had about what my life was supposed to be. I had this uh, vision, you know, this kind of leave it to beaver type vision where I would grow up and and be married and have a couple of kids and uh, have my own house and, you know, white picket fence around the house and be this successful person, have my own business, and and, uh, it would make me whatever I was supposed to be. I had no clue what that was, but I figured if I went out and got all this stuff, I'd know what it was, and I would be this whole fulfilled person and um, so I set out on that journey to do that and uh, not long after I got that apartment I got a phone call from uh, from a girl that, that cheerleader that I was in love with in Virginia and she had moved, she graduated from high school and moved to Maryland and we decided to get together and uh, July 12th 1980 I think it was we had our first date, we went to a Baltimore Orioles game and uh and I fell in love all over again and I started taking her out to dinner and buying her flowers and I was uh, I mean I was just going to town I was I was putting it all to her and uh, so to speak and um, and uh, August 1st came around now, now our first date was July 12th August 1st came around and I don't have enough money to pay my rent because I spent it all on her so I asked her if I could borrow the money and she let me borrow the money and uh, I paid my rent, and I said, "Well, as long as you're paying rent, you might as well be living here." So, she moved in. So, uh, moved in in August, and September we got engaged. And the following January, or the following—I'm sorry—in January we got engaged, and the following September we uh, we got married. And uh, and she didn't—I uh, guess my drinking wasn't bad. It was noticeable to her, but it wasn't uh, to the point to where uh, she was. Uh, at that time, she was real concerned about it. I, you know, I smoked them funny cigarettes for a little while, and she didn't like the way I acted when I smoked that stuff, so she asked me to stop, so I did. It was that simple. That's that's my drug story. And um, <laughs> and, and I started, but I didn't stop drinking. I just kept on drinking. And to kind of illustrate how it's the whole thing started out, the relationship, I remember one night we, we went out and... Uh, and I got really drunk, and I did some really stupid things. And uh, we came back home, and she was packing her bags to leave. I mean, she she just had had enough. And we were we weren't married yet. We were together about a, maybe a year, less than a year. And I was angry that she was leaving, and I was scared. of I was afraid, really, that this girl was leaving, and she meant everything to me, and I didn't want her to leave. And she and I just couldn't. And the and the more she was standing there packing and crying and yelling and all that stuff, the angrier I got. And I mean, I've, this rage just built up. Me and I just, I need to let it loose. And I, I wanted to hit something or throw something or whatever. And I've looked over and there was this iron sitting on the ironing board. And I reached over and I grabbed that iron and raised back. And as hard as I could, I smacked myself in the head. And what made me do that? I have no idea to this day. (laughs) But blood started flying all over the place, and she screamed, and, uh, and that scared me more than anything when she did that. And she grabbed me and took me to the hospital, and, and I'm laying up there, and a the doctor comes in, and he's sewing my head up, and, and uh, he asked me what happened, and I said, I, I fell and hit my head on some steps. He said, it looks like something hard and flat hit you on the... <laughs> And I thought, how in the world could he tell that? And... And I said, no, I fell and hit my head on the step. So he wasn't going to argue with me. I was still pretty looped. And, uh, and he stitched me up and we went home and she stayed, you know, oh. and that was, uh, that was the deal. And that's how it, and we got married. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how it went. <clears throat> I am a, am uh, a printer by trade and, and I've been work, working for this printing company and we started out on our, on our journey and we had a couple of kids and, and, uh, and the longer uh, things went on, the more I started to drink and we used to go to parties and she would uh, kind of follow me around, you know, and don't drink so much. Don't you think you've had enough, you know? And she kind of kept track of what I was doing. And there would, there would be a point during the evening that I would go over the line and then she would stop. She knew it. I mean, she knew the instant that I was gone and she would walk away and sit in the corner and just sit there until I was done and we were ready to go home. And, uh, and that happened many and many a night. And, and we went along, and, and I started, uh, I was working for a couple of companies, and I, you know, when the heat started doing things, air wasn't supposed to be doing, and and things started uh, getting hot at one company, and I'd quit and go to work for another company, and, and that's the kind of stuff that started happening. Um, I remember... Uh, You know, the, the big book talks about uh, alcoholism being an obsession of the mind a compulsion of the body, and the doctor's opinion starts talking about that. And the first time I drank, that obsession was there. You know, I knew that this stuff was going to do for me what I could not do for myself. Anytime the heat got on, anytime it got bad, anytime I felt like I couldn't handle it, I would drink that stuff, and it would make me feel okay. So that obsession was always there. I don't know if I was an instant alcoholic, but somewhere along the line, that compulsion kicked in, and there came a time where I had to drink just to get through the day, and uh, and there came a time where I was—that's what I was doing. And I used to—I'm uh, you know, 29 years old now. I've got two kids. I'm sitting on a—I'm sitting on a bar in a. Uh, in Colombia, in the middle of the afternoon, and I'm scared, and I'm lonely, and uh, and I don't know what's wrong, and and I'm thinking this is the way it's going to be the rest of my life. You know, I'm 29 years old. I had gotten all of those things that I said. You know, if I go out and get this stuff, it's going to make me who I am. I was married. I had the two kids. We had gotten a house. By this time, I own my own business. I. I' run out of people to work for in the area, so when you do that, you start your own business, and that's what I do and um, and I'm sitting on that bar thinking I got everything I was supposed to get, and it's not doing for me what I was what it's supposed to do, and this is just the way it's going to be because there's nothing left to get, and I'm just miserable. you know the, and I blamed the wife and the kids and the I blamed all of that stuff. I blamed all that stuff, and uh, and I just sit there miserable every day. And and what I what typically what I would do is, you know, when I got my own business, the first three things I got were a couch, a television, and a refrigerator, and stuck them in the uh, in my shop. And uh, what I would do is I would get up early in the morning, I go to work, and I would uh, start, you know, working as hard as I could to fulfill all these promises that I had made the day before. And you know, the, right around lunchtime. It's time to go to lunch. Well, obviously at lunchtime. And I'm an executive now with my own business, so naturally I gotta go to lunch. And I've got a you know beeper so that people can get a hold of me. So I figure like I'm being responsible. So I'd close up my shop and I'd go to lunch and I'd and i walk into this bar. And uh, it was good it was good. This is how where my life had gotten to. As soon as I'd walk into that bar the barmaid would see me and she'd grab a Budweiser beer and a menu and she'd put it right on the corner of the bar where I sat every day. That was the highlight of my day. That was the best it got all day long was, you know, that was, just made me feel like so important. And I would sit there and and I would drink for a while and then I'd go back to the shop and uh, all these people would be calling wanting to know where all these jobs were that I was promising and and I'd make up some lies and I'd make promises for the next day and at 5 o'clock I'd turn the answering machine on, call my wife, tell her I was working late, run up to the liquor store, buy a pint of old granddad and a six-pack of beer, and go back to the shop and sit there and drink until it was gone. And I'd go home and I'd pass out on the couch and my wife would be think I was, I was just tired from working too late working so much. And I'd get up the next morning and I'd do it all over again. And uh, and it just went on like that and went on like that. And the, I, I stopped going to that bar at, at noon because it, it didn't open till 11.30. I started going to one that opened at uh, 11 o'clock. Then I started going to one that opened at 10.30. And then I'm sitting in the parking lot waiting for that to open, you know. And, and over a period of time, that kind of thing started to occur. And it, and it was just a... It was just a vicious cycle. I mean, it was just the same thing every day, and it got to uh, it got to the point to where, uh, well, I'll tell you about my last drunk because that's really where where we need to go with this. Is uh, and I wasn't drunk every day. I wasn't falling down drunk every day, but I never knew when I was going when I started to drink. I never knew what was going to happen. Sometimes I'd be gone for a while, and sometimes you know it would be just just that everyday normal thing. And this guy called me up in a. It was a Friday night, and he said, uh, let's go to happy hour. And I didn't like going to happy hour. I didn't like all the people. You know, I went to the bar at, at noon or 11 or whatever, and then I'd drink until the- <laughs> I am telling the truth. Are we still here? All right, we're back. We're back. Um...
1: All right, I didn't, I didn't like being around a lot
0: of people, so I would go and drink at, at noon, and then around 3 or 4 o'clock, when people started coming in, I'd get out of there because I just couldn't stand being around people. And this guy called me one night, and he said, you know, he wanted to go to happy hour. So I said, okay, and I, I uh, hooked up with him and called my wife. I had a commitment with my wife. Called her and told her I would be there. You know, I had $5 in my pocket. I figured I'd go to happy hour, have two drinks. I'd be out of money, I'd have to leave, go make a commitment with my wife, everybody would be happy. So I go to this uh I go to this bar, I have my two drinks, and uh I said, I gotta go. And the guy said, Where are you going? I said, Well, I'm I'm out of money and I got this thing with my wife, and really I was out of money, that's why I was leaving. And he had gotten a new job and a new expense account, he pulled out his American Express car, he said, This is your lucky day. He said, Whatever you want, it's on me. Just go at it. So I jumped back up on that bar stool and uh and he ordered and I drank. And I drank stuff, I mean, I drank stuff that night I'd never seen or heard of before. Stuff had fire coming out of it and everything else. And uh, and I drank as destructively, I can remember sitting there drinking as destructively that night as i had ever done. I just wanted it just to go away for good. You know, I just wanted it to all just go away. I was so tired of it. And I can remember, I can remember sitting there and there's this guy next to me and I got into an argument with him because it was Super Bowl weekend, and this guy looked just like Joe Montana, and his 49ers were in a Super Bowl in San Diego, California. And I wanted to know why he wasn't in San Diego. And, uh, and that was my conversation for the night, I guess. I don't know. But I remember sitting there, and and there was a lot of people in there that night, and I had never felt so lonely in all my life. You know, you sometimes you can be in a room full of people and you're just so alone and it just it's just me there and that's how I felt and this guy decided uh the bartender decided that we had had enough to drink and this is back when they were starting to make uh some of the establishments responsible for their patrons when they you know got them all drunk and then let them go out and they get in a car and go kill somebody and then they were starting to take a look at these people that were getting them drunk so so this guy decided we were too drunk he wasn't in the service anymore so he called us a cab and uh, we got to that cab told the cab driver some lie about where he lived we lived and uh, he took us to another neighborhood and we poured out of the cab and walked into a bar in that neighborhood and, uh, and I remember the last thing I remember was walking in there and uh, ordering a drink and the name of that bar was the last chance saloon that's where I had my last drink and uh and the next thing I know, I woke up on my bathroom floor, um, about two o'clock in the morning, mad because I thought somebody had thrown up all over me, and, uh, I was bruised from head to toe, don't know what happened, I don't know if my wife just beat on me while I was laying there or, if, or, or what happened, and I was sick and felt like I was going to die, and, and, uh, my wife was downstairs on the couch crying again, and that wasn't the first time, that was, uh become a pretty, uh, pretty normal thing, and and I crawled into the bed, and uh, you know, and and I can remember hearing her down there and getting so angry. Doesn't she know how that makes me feel when she does that? You know, I was so selfish. That selfishness and that self-centeredness, and and I was probably the most selfish, self-centered thing you can say as a drunk is the only person my drinking ever hurt was me. And I really thought that because I didn't drink at home. I came home drunk, but I didn't drink at home, and, and it didn't seem to me like all of that was being thrust on them. And uh, and if she just knew how that made me feel, she wouldn't be doing that, you know. And, and I just and I could never get the sound of her crying out of my head. You know, I could drink enough to just about take make anything go away, but the sound of that couldn't. I could never get rid of that. And I hope I never forget that. I hope I never get where I've forget where I came from. And uh, I was laying there, and, and uh, you know, the thought of killing myself was never, I never thought about that, but but I laid there thinking, you know, if I didn't have to wake up and do this all over again tomorrow, it wouldn't be the worst thing that could ever happen to me. So by now, I th- I, I knew that tomorrow wasn't going to be different. I never, By this time, I didn't think, you know, I'll wake up tomorrow and I'll do this, you know, and all this, and it, it'll be different. I knew that tomorrow I was going to wake up. It may be different pay- people or different places, but the uh, the results were going to be the same, and I was going to feel the way I felt and and do the things I did, and I just didn't want to have to keep on doing that. Just didn't want to have to keep on doing it, that. and that's the last thing I remember. And I guess that was you know that was it for me. That was my moment of truth, I, I guess. And and I, I remember uh, got out of bed a couple of days later, and 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 I was really sick, and, and I, I used to get real sick. And, and my wife I don't know if she did this on purpose I swear to—I swear this day she did it on purpose our bedroom was right above the kitchen and she hardly ever cooked breakfast but whenever I came off a drunk and was laying there up there sick she would cook bacon and the smell of that bacon <laughs> would cook and oh my god and I don't think she's cooked bacon since I got sober but it, it seemed like she did that on purpose and I got up the next morning and uh and I, I guess I knew something was wrong and I needed to do something. You know, I never thought that, that drinking was my problem. I never thought I'm an alcoholic and drinking is my problem and I need to do something about this. Drinking was always the thing that, that, that made it okay. You know, I could, uh, as long as I got something to drink, I would feel okay. So it wasn't a problem, it was the solution. Everything, being sober was my problem. That seemed like it was a problem. And and I woke up and I thought, you know, I need to do something. I made a phone call to my grandfather, who was down in Florida. And I said, I I need some help. And I told him what was going on. And he said, well, he couldn't do anything really for me down there. So he said, sit tight. And he called a guy in uh, Laurel, who called a guy in College Park, who called me. that's how I got my first uh, real contact with Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I knew my grandfather was uh, sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew about that. I figured, you know, the job in the family was already taken. I, I couldn't be an alcoholic. And, uh, and this guy c- called me from his liquor store. He was uh, 10 years sober, owned two liquor stores in Prince George's County. And he, uh, he started talking to me about, you know, a little bit about uh, alcoholics anonymous and not drinking. He said, do you think you can not drink in the next five minutes? And I said, yeah, I think I can do that. And he said, well, can you do it for 10? And, and after that, he's do it for fifty, you know and he was trying to give me we do that one minute at a time, one hour at a time, one day at a time concept, and uh he said, "Just don't drink now right now and uh and we'll we'll get this thing worked out he said i want what I want you to do is meet me, and we're going to go to a meeting, and he said, "I want you to try this thing for thirty days and save your money." You know, and he said, if it doesn't work out, if you feel like this is not for you, he said, you get all your money, you come on down to my liquor store, and I'll be happy to sell you anything you want. And uh, he's a very entrepreneurial guy, you know. <laughs> so we made arrangements to meet, and uh, and I met him in this parking lot. We had about a 20-minute ride to the meeting, and he spent that 20 minutes talking about himself and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the classic 12-step uh, on me. He told me... Uh, Told me about his story and and you know I don't know if I uh, I didn't comprehend everything but I knew one thing I knew he knew what he was talking about I knew he knew and there was a feeling of comfort in that and a feeling of hope you know there was a feeling of hope and one of the greatest gifts he gave me and I try to do this with everybody I sponsor today is he told me exactly what was going to happen at that meeting from the Serenity Prayer to the Lord's Prayer everything in between and the meeting went off exactly like he told me. And uh, I was still scared to death, but I knew what was what was going to happen. And, and he told me there's going to be some steps on the wall and some stuff about God. And he said, uh, I don't know how you feel about the God thing, but he said, but don't worry about it. You just don't drink one day at a time, and keep coming in here, and that'll take care of itself. And uh, and that's what I uh, that's what I did. I, I went to that meeting and uh, and I got a lot of good advice. I got some phone numbers. Now, this meeting was in College Park. I lived in Columbia, so it was quite a ways away. And and they told me what to do, go back to my home, go to some meetings, talk to me about sponsorship and home group and all that kind of stuff. And I left there thinking, okay, I'm in the right place, but I don't need to know if I need to do all of that. You know, it's kind of, I thought I would do just like I did everything else, do it just enough to get by. You know, always halfway, just enough to get by and I would be okay. And that's what I started out doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, I'll call it and for, the next, uh, for the next nine months in AA, the only two things I did was not drink and go to meetings. And that was it. And if you're only gonna do two things, those are two good ones to do. But that's all I did. I didn't drink and I went to meetings. Went to a lot of AA meetings. And uh, I didn't have a sponsor, I didn't have a home group. I didn't have any of that stuff. And, uh, and at the end of nine months, I was as miserable and as scared and as lonely as I was the day I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. The only difference was I wasn't drinking. Suffering tremendously from untreated alcoholism. And that's what was happening to me. You know, I got sober and I was I was with my wife. I had the you know the house and the kids and the business and everything. I had the business about a year. It wasn't doing real well by the way. And uh too many long lunches, I think. And uh I was about three months sober, and I was talking to my wife, and we were having tremendous problems. We were having a lot of problems. And I, and I just looked at her, and I said, and I was convinced of this. I said, you know, I haven't had a drink for three months, and I've been going to these meetings, and we're still having a problem, a lot of problems, so it must be you. And, uh, and if there's anybody out there, if I can give anybody any advice, whatever you do, don't say that to your uh, to your wife, because right after that, stuff started flying by my head. And, uh, and it wasn't a... Uh, it didn't go over real well, and through uh, I used to say she threw me out, but I I uh I just made it so miserable on her that she just couldn't take it anymore. And we were arguing one day, and I said, "What well, do you want me to leave?" And she said, "Yes." And that was my that was opening the door for me, man. I was gone in ten minutes, and uh, and I was out of there. And we uh we were separated for almost a year, in Alcoholics Anonymous, me being sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I tell you what, my you know, my wife. Uh, God bless her. She um, she went. If you ask her today, she'd probably tell you my first year of sobriety was much worse than my last year of drinking. I mean, I was a, I was just a mess, and and I put her through hell. I really did. And thinking that I was getting better the whole time. And I, uh, you know, I'm three months sober now, and. You know, I came in Alcoholics Anonymous with the wife and the kids and house, and I'm three months sober, and uh, everything I can call my own's in a little red bag, and I'm sleeping on somebody else's couch. And people are asking me how you doing, and I'm thinking, and I'm telling them I'm doing great, and things are great. I'm sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and my life is just falling apart. It's just falling apart. And I, I started doing stuff uh, that uh, I wouldn't recommend people do in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I will tell you, it's a miracle that I'm still sober. I really think it's a miracle. Um, I always said that there's, I did things uh, drunk that I never thought I'd do, and I started doing things sober in Alcoholics Anonymous that I only thought I'd do drunk, and it caught up to me, you know, it caught up to me. I wasn't doing anything but not drinking, going to meetings, still living like a drunk, and uh, it started to show itself. And in nine months of sobriety, I I just couldn't take it anymore, and and I went to uh, I went to Blackstone, of all places, and. Uh, first time and, and, and I sat around that place and I I kind of observed what was going on and I thought this isn't what I'm seeing where I you know this isn't the kind of AA I'm seeing it back at home. And and I knew I mean it was wonderful. And I knew if something was wrong and I needed to do something. Because I wasn't gonna last. And I went back home and and I'd been watching this guy an Alcoholics Anonymously he'd gone through a divorce and uh, and I was looking at that so I figured he, he went through that divorce with uh, a lot of dignity and his integrity intact, and, and he carried himself well. He had been sober a couple years and, and had worked the 12 steps. And I went up to him and I said, uh, I'm scared to death. I, have, I don't know what I'm doing. My life is just falling apart. Will you please help me? And I asked him to be my sponsor. And the weight of the world just came off my shoulders. I mean, it, it's like I couldn't believe it. And he said, uh, he said of course I will. So I was wondering when you were going to get around to asking somebody to help you. And um, I I was convinced if he had said no, I was gone. I would have taken off out of there. And we started talking, and he said, well, what step are you on? And I said, seven. You know, some. I wanted to impress him. He laughed just like that. And I I wanted to, you know, I was still, I didn't want anybody to know, you know. It was so obvious to everybody. and, And he said, well, I'll tell you what, he said, you get the big book, and uh, we're going to meet at this particular place every week, and we'll review the first six steps, and uh, and that's what we did. Uh, I got the big book, and I got together with him, and every uh, and every week we started working the steps right out of the twelve, the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's where I got my, that's where I got my program was out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he made me get a home group, and uh, right away he made me get a job in that home group, and. Um, and my first job was a greeter. It was the best job I've ever had since. Um, I've had a lot of jobs, done, done just about everything you could do in a home group, and, and that's probably the, my favorite thing to do, to stand there at that door and shake people's hands when they come in there. When I was done that job, everybody in my home group knew me, and I knew everybody in my home group. It was, a, it was one of the best things I've ever, I've ever done. And we started working those steps, and, uh, and I'll tell you, um, my life began to change. I began to change. I began to change, and and I knew, uh, you know, I knew I was powerless over alcohol. I just wasn't clear on how unmanageable my life was until that time, and and it became real clear to me how mess how messed up things were as a result of what I was doing, and I really I turned my will and my life over to my sponsor, really in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and. And I w- and I was started. I did everything he told me to do. I was willing to do anything to stop feeling the way I was feeling for my life to change. And I remember a guy named Sam uh, talking in a meeting one time, and he said, "My sponsor told me to stand on my head and stack greasy BBs. I'd have done that if it was going to keep me sober." And I thought, "Yeah, that's willing to go to any lengths." And that's kind of the way I felt. And and I started working through these steps. And and one of the uh, one of the things that I was having a real problem with was this insanity thing you know I was looking at the steps and, and I could read and I'm reading the steps and the second step talks about being restored to sanity that's not what the second step is the second step is about coming to believe but restored to sanity I didn't understand that because I didn't think I was insane you know and I'm I didn't think I, you know, I'm thinking insanity is being in an insane asylum and that wasn't, I, I wasn't there So I I was having trouble with this, and I I remember I got asked to uh, go to the House of Corrections down in Jessup, taking an an institution meeting. And I said yes, and I had nothing to take down there. And I don't know why I said yes, but I I agreed to do it. And a bunch of us went down there. It was a great meeting. It was an excellent meeting, as a matter of fact. um, A lot of sobriety in that meeting. And went in there, it was this small room, and the guard... uh, let us all in there, and then he closed the door and locked it. And he was on the other side. And I was a little nervous about that, but because I'd never been to one of these things before. And there was nothing on the walls. The walls were completely bare, except up over top of the secretary was this white piece of paper that said, "Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting different results." And I'd heard that a thousand times, and and I don't know. It just hit me that night. I understood exactly what the second step was referring to when they talked about insanity and and also understood something else that there's nobody called him down there and said hey victor's having a problem with sanity would you mind writing it on a piece of paper and sticking it up on the wall you know i I started to think that maybe there was something else that was working here in my life just that little bit started to come to believe and and the big book talks about there come a time that the only uh, thing that comes between you and a drink is the relationship with a god of your understanding. And I believed that because I knew there wasn't anything that would come between me and a drink to that point. And I also knew I was kind of in trouble because I didn't have a god of my understanding. I, I, I just didn't, uh, I didn't have anything when I came in here. And, and we, uh, my sponsor and I talked about it. And, and I thought, you know, the and the th- we were going through the book and in, in, uh we agnostic it says uh, much to our relief our own conception of god no matter how inadequate is enough to make an approach and to an effect a contact with him and i thought that's pretty good i mean i don't it, my concept at that point wasn't working for me all i need to do is change my mind and i sat back and thought about okay my concept however inadequate what would be my concept of god and i and i kind of th- leaned back and closed my eyes and uh and his vision of Ralph Camden Cramden came to me. And uh, and I thought, no, oh, that's pretty inadequate. And uh and it was a little wacky, but I you know you go with what you got. And uh and I thought you know, I, I had told a couple of people about this and and, and you know what's beautiful about Alcoholics Anonymous is nobody told me, oh, you can't do that. That's not going to work. <laughs> nobody told me I was going to get drunk. No, Nobody told me to change it. They said, you go with whatever you got. And, um, no matter how slender the thread, you go with whatever you got. And that little inadequate belief and that willingness was enough to uh, to keep me going in Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank God that's evolved into something much, uh, much bigger than the uh, than Ralph Grandin, and um, and I began to work these steps, and uh, got into the fourth and fifth step. I, I, did, I remember doing the fourth step. I was in the middle of doing that, and uh, I did like a lot of people do. I thought about it a lot, and and I went and got a nice journal, you know, and a new pen and all this kind of stuff. And my sponsor kept asking me about it, and one day we were sitting there having dinner, and he said, uh, "So how you doing on the fourth step?" And I said, well, you know, i got this nice journal and so on and so forth. And I was going to go down and see my grandparents in, uh, in Florida, and I said, well, I'm getting ready to go to Florida, so I'm going to be gone there for about a week and so on and so forth. And he said, well, so i tell you what, just as a matter of factly, he said, uh, when you get back from Florida, he said, if you're not ready to do your fifth step, then you need to find another sponsor. He says, because there's people that are willing to do whatever it takes to get sober, and if you're not one of them, you need to get out of the way and make room for somebody who is. And uh, that got my attention. And I went down to Florida, and I sat in that driveway of my grandparents' house, and I, uh, I did my fourth step. So I did it in two afternoons. I sat down there and did it. And uh, came back, and I was ready to do my fifth step. And we sat down and started uh, started talking about my fifth step. And that was one of the probably the most profound things that, that, uh, that I've ever gone through. Talked about everything. Didn't leave anything out. And that is when... Uh, I sat there and, I, and, I, and this feeling came over me while, I, while we were there talking. And the, the, it was the presence of God. That's what it was. And, and I knew that there's no way that two people like us, two drunks, could sit there, two men could sit there and talk about the things that we were talking about. There's no way that that happens without something else being there and, and, uh, and driving it. And for the first time, I really... Started to take in the power of uh, of God, really, and and God really revealed Himself to me during that time, and it was a it was just a wonderful thing. And I moved on through the sixth and seventh step, and uh, uh, trying to get God or, or turning these uh, character defects over the, to uh, to God to have them removed. And during this time, I. My wife and I were still uh, separated, and I, I called her up one day, and we got, we got together and s- had lunch, and I told her what I was doing, and I said, if you're willing to, I'm willing to give it another try. I said, I discovered really where the problem really was, and uh, and I said, if you're willing to try it, I, I'm willing. And and I was ready. I, I was convinced we were divorced, and she had kept that hope alive. You know, God bless her. She's the one that I give her all the credit because she had kept that hope alive, and we got back together, and uh, and we had a hard time in the beginning. We had a hard time, but we stuck with it, and uh, and it's turned out pretty well. We're, as a matter of fact, uh, this September we'll celebrate 22 years of uh, of marriage, and worked out so well. We had a couple more kids, and, uh, <laughs> and I wish she could be here. And, uh, we've got a lot of kids. Uh, one of two of them, their last day of school is today. One of them's graduating from the fifth grade, and then I've got a Another daughter that's graduating from high school on Sunday, and we got family coming in, so she was just she's consumed with all of that right now, and just couldn't be here. And I'm sorry she couldn't be here. But that's uh, that's been one of the gifts in this program, is being able to uh, be there for my family. Um, working through the rest of these steps was uh, I got into the eighth and ninth, and, and my dad, my my real father, that was a big that was a biggie for me. I mean, everybody's got a biggie, and that was, a, that was one of my biggies. And, uh, and he had tried to get in touch with me over the years, and I just wouldn't have anything to do with it. I'd hung up on him and everything else. I mean, I was, it was, just, it, was a, it was just a bad deal. And I called him up, and I told him what I was doing, and we agreed to meet. He was going to be in town. He lives in Virginia. And we sat down, and we started talking, and, and I apologized to him for what I had done. And we, we had breakfast, and we talked about a few more things, and we said our goodbyes and left, and, uh, and I didn't see him again for about another three or four years. And, and I, I never felt right about it at the time, and it, and it just weighed on me and weighed on me and weighed on me more and more as the years went by. And, and I learned a great lesson, and I talked to my sponsor about this, and the difference between making an apology and making an amends. And I made an apology. I hadn't changed anything. And that's what amends is about—is about making a change. And I knew that I needed to do something. He had—I mean—he had grandchildren that he'd never seen. And and I started to thinking about the things that I, basically, the the things that I stole from my father, my relationship, his relationship with me, and his relationship with his grandchildren. And I got a hold of him again. And I made arrangements to go up and see him, spend the day with him at his house, and, uh, and that went real well. And before I left there, we had a, a date to uh, get the family together, and I, I grabbed my wife and kids, and we went up there, and it's just, it was just tremendous, just a tremendous time. And, and since then, we have been forming this relationship. We've been trying to, to bring that uh, back again, and it's been a, just been one of the blessings of my life. It's been a great thing. It's been a great opportunity. And uh I saw him last weekend. It was my daughter's uh graduation party. So that that's going real well. And and I'm making amends. I'm making a change, you know. I'm trying to make something different. it's been real real rewarding. But I'm continue to work these steps and I tell you the 12 steps are the best thing that uh ever happened to It's the best thing that I've ever done. My life, I've never had anything impact my life so much. It've been so such a profound uh impact on my life and and i'm you know i'm getting through the steps and i'm thinking i'm running out of steps you know what am i going to do when i when i get to this 12th step and then i'll be out of steps and uh and i talked to my sponsor about this and and we talked about uh you know he said you, one of these days somebody's going to come up to you and they're going to say you know i'm scared and lonely and i don't know what to do will you please help me and he said when that happens the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous will come back and uh, you will be rewarded beyond your your wildest dreams. And uh, not two weeks after he said that to me, somebody came up to me and, and did just that. And, uh, and I was given the privilege of um, helping somebody else in this program. It's a uh, that's been one of the most rewarding things that I can think of in Alcoholics Anonymous, was to be able to help somebody else. And uh, the, the opportunity that we have and the gift that we're given, and, and sometimes I think I take it for granted, I don't. there's not many people in this world to get the opportunity to do what we do, to see the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous take somebody who was where I was and watch that process change them in a, in a, and watch them evolve into a, a person that is a, It's just an incredible, incredible experience. To see that transformation is nothing short of a miracle, nothing short of witnessing a miracle. And, uh, and we are blessed to be able to do that. Um, I was, uh, I guess, about five or five, six years ago almost. I moved from Columbia to Westminster, and um,
1: and I had a home group in
0: in uh, Howard County, and I kept driving back and forth, and it was getting old, and and there was a bunch of us that moved up to uh, had moved up to Carroll County, Westminster area, and we decided to get together and start a group, and uh, when we did that, and that's the Eldersburg Into Action group, and home groups have always been one of the uh, most important things in my sobriety. I was so fortunate to be put into a group that was. Uh, had a good foundation in the traditions and, and taught me uh, taught me about Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, the groups that I've been have taught me about Alcoholics Anonymous, have taught me how to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, taught me the traditions, taught me the unwritten traditions, you know, how to, how to conduct myself at a meeting. What am I supposed to do when I come up here? How do I dress? How do I talk? <laughs> I heard that. It's coming down to. And uh, and it, my home group has just been one of the most important things uh, in my sobriety. And we started this group, and I tell you, it's, it's taken off and it's done pretty, pretty good. And there's some great members of Alcoholics Anonymous in that group, a lot of them in here today. And one of the things that we get to do is uh, we get to uh, talk to new people. And, uh, and that's my gift, is to be able to take this thing and share it with somebody else. And before that comes down, <laughs> I'm going to read this, and then, uh, and then that's going to be it for me. And again, thank everybody for, uh, for having me here and for sitting through this. And good news is, I'm the 4 o'clock speaker. You've got a whole weekend to look forward to. And whatever you didn't get here, you'll get, I'm sure, this weekend. This is out of Bill Caesar, page 13. <laughs> <laughs> AA is more than a set of principles. It is a society of alcoholics in action. We must carry the message else we ourselves can wither and those who haven't been given the truth may die. Thanks for giving me the truth.